0: prepared to hear the truth from a real whistleblower, an American patriot, here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended
1: FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show. Today, we're going to bring you some commentary on the DOJ and the FBI. Big surprise to our regular listeners. But the real question is, with all this talk of a national divorce filling the headlines, and all of the right-wing pundits talking about it. My question is, is the political left capable of a single honest answer or a real honest discussion about anything? The big topics we're gonna be hitting for you today, the Washington Post um, very recently released an article in the last day or two about some background information on the Miralago raid. And I don't think it shows what they think it does. But it's interesting, considering it is The Washington Post covering this. We're going to do a little bit more commentary and coverage of the uh, interview that Brett Baer did with uh, Chris Ray. I'm going to call it the fluff interview. The thing about this thing is, is that uh, Brett Baer didn't do a terrible job. But once again, we can't consider Chris Ray to be a conservative in any way, shape or form. He may have been a registered Republican when he was picked. Uh, But the man has an awful lot of leftist tactics when it comes to hiding from the answers. Um, I'm going to talk about Merrick Garland sitting in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee as some of the highlights, some of the lowlights. Uh, I took kind of like a brief note of some of the ridiculous topics that the Democrat senators asked, or rather just sort of stated um, their sort of positions on things that are kind of silly. And uh, we'll get into a couple of like pretty solid questions that came out of the the guys like uh, Senator Kennedy. Senator Cruz, Senator Howley, kind of bringing it up pretty strongly. Um, This has been a strange news week in a lot of ways. I think that we are trying to be, there's a distraction going on. So the final thing that got dropped, and this got dropped last night, um, and some of you may have heard this in a Twitter space that I was part of, but the FBI um, published a cybersecurity strategy for 2023 um, through the White House, came out through this portal. We're gonna break it down. I think it is all bad. I've had multiple reporters reach out to me, ask for my take on it and their statement was, it sounds like we should be leaving the country. So that's not a good place to start, but uh, that is kind of the world that we live in right now. I wanna start right away with this Washington Post article. I wanna get into it straight away and kind of uh, dig into what they think that they said and then what they actually said. So I'm gonna transition over here to our webpage and our viewer. And so the article is entitled Showdown Before the Raid, FBI Agents and Prosecutors Argued Over Trump. Okay, well, that could be interesting, couldn't it? Um, It's really not as interesting as you think it is. I think it shows exactly what we have all thought, but it does try to like, I don't know, cover for the FBI in some way, shape or form at the expense of the DOJ. Very strange. Uh, Carol Ying. Leonig, I guess, writing here, it says an exclusive look at the behind the scenes deliberation. Both sides wrestled with the national security case, potentially far reaching political consequences. There's a picture of mar lago seen a bunch of those. All right. So let's just kind of dig into this article here. Months of dispute between the Justice Department prosecutors and FBI agents out of how to best recover classified documents. from Donald Trump's mar lago club and residents led to a tense showdown near the end of July last year according to four people familiar with discussions. Who are these four people? Uh, Why are they familiar? And what is their motivation, I wonder? What is it that they have to gain by sharing this information? Are they trying to defend the FBI? I'm getting the impression based on Ray's interview and based on the fact that we are seeing this sort of like, what? We haven't seen him in two years do a public interview like this. I think they're trying to cover for what they've been up to and they're going to try to do a PR blitz and I don't think it's going to work because you're going to hear what I think about this thing in just a second. It says prosecutors argued that new evidence suggested Donald Trump was knowingly concealing secret documents in his Palm Beach, Florida home and urged the FBI to conduct a surprise raid at the property. Like why? Why why was there a surprise raid? Just on every level I don't understand this. They had already been there and inspected so This is foolishness. Uh, Two senior FBI officials who would be in charge of leading this search resisted the plan as too combative and proposed instead to seek Trump's permission. So that would be a a consensual search of the property, according to these four people, once again, who spoke on condition of anonymity uh, in order to disguise the fact that they're leaking stuff on behalf of the FBI. So prosecutors ultimately prevailed in this dispute. One of several previously unreported clashes in this tense struggle between the two arms of the doj which is going to be the obviously the doj prosecutors and then the fbi blah 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 blah. the fbi conducted an unprecedented raid we know this happened on august 8th they got more than 100 classified documents this is the claim obviously we're not going to see what they are describing foreign government military defenses including nuclear capabilities oh we're back to the nuclear story that's good thanks washington post so starting in May, FBI agents in the Washington field office sought to slow the probe, urging caution, given the extraordinary sensitivity. Well, one would think, because we're talking about a former president here, and this has never been done. So moreover, there's, uh, as, as Garland testified, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but uh, you know, Garland basically said he signed off on it and agreed to the search warrant, um, but, but there's no real clear reason why that would be the case, because why would the DOJ get involved in a National Archives case hasn't historically and presidents have always taken things home once again to sort of get Donald Trump luckily Ted Cruz did a great job like a really really good job of just hammering that point home and I'll see if I can find it in the video we're going to be kind of skipping around a little bit and uh, you have to bear with me because I don't have producer Phil however back to this article here Um, some of those field agents wanted to shutter the criminal investigation altogether in early July, I'm sorry, in early June, uh, after Trump's legal team asserted a diligent search had been conducted and that all classified records were turned over, according to some people with knowledge of these discussions. Again, the some people thing, it's just awful. Like nobody wants to actually go on record with a source, so they're willing to take this stuff. It's kind of wild. The idea of closing the probe was not something that was discussed or considered by FBI leadership and would not have been approved, said the senior law enforcement official. I wonder how senior you have to be. I'm pretty confident that as a GS-13, Washington Post would consider any FBI agent a senior official. Uh, But we'll continue on. Disagreements stemmed in large part from worries among officials that whatever steps they took in investigating a former president would face intense scrutiny. Oh, you think? Really? You think it would have intense scrutiny if you knocked on the door of a former president's house? This is wild. Oh, and there'd be second guessing by people inside and outside the government, like everybody, like literally everybody who just doesn't have the get Donald Trump attitude. And uh, and don't get me wrong. That's not to say that Donald Trump doesn't have his foibles. I think that'd be foolish for us to, to sit there. Um, there's some allegations going around now that uh, are trying to impugn the honor of myself and my friends, uh, the suspendables as like these ultra diehard magas. Like, no, we're just ultra diehard Americans. And uh, it turns out that Donald Trump was a pretty good president. And that's not to say that he didn't have his his faults. But if we're not going to be honest about that, like, I'd prefer Donald Trump 100 times out of 100 over a Joe Biden. That'd be foolish to think otherwise. Like, this guy's terrible, the current one. And if you think that Donald Trump would have signed off on uh, a search warrant on a Barack Obama, I think we know that he didn't. So there you go. Whereas the Joe Biden administration's got this thing done in the first, what, year? Pretty incredible. So they're worried about uh, it's going to look bad, and they know that people would second guess it. However, the agents who typically perform the bulk of the investigative work in cases, I don't even know what that means, like uh, agents do all the work, (laughs) prosecutors sort of just like, ask questions and then have us go find out if they need something more. And the prosecutors who guide the agents work and decide on the criminal charges, yeah, they do do that, ultimately focused on very different pitfalls, according to these people. Again, anonymous sources. On one side, federal prosecutors in the department's National Security Division advocated aggressive ways to to secure some of the country's most securely held secrets. Like, no, they were not our most closely held secrets. This is absurd. These are not like designs for, uh, you know, a a battleship or a uh, a supercarrier. Who knows what he took home, but I'm sure it was conversations and it was, you know, this is this is chaos To, to suggest that these are our most closely held secrets. It's like compared to what? And, and who at the Washington Post that's writing this stuff has ever held a security clearance or knows anything about it? Probably very little. It's just, it's embarrassing that the that this passes as writing in a, a formerly, like, fairly reputable uh, journalistic publication. All right. On the other hand, FBI, sorry, I can't help getting distracted. You read this stuff and it's like, I roll my eyes really hard when I watch movies about the FBI and I watched uh, law enforcement commentary. And this is the same thing. It's like, my wife thinks I'm the worst to watch a movie with because of this. Uh, but I'm the worst when I'm reading an article too. On the other hand, FBI agents in the Washington field office urge more caution with such a high profile matter and recommending they take a cooperative approach rather than a confrontational approach. That's weird. I wonder if we had like any precedent of someone else getting sort of like a cooperative approach, maybe like Joe Biden next to the Corvette. This is like a, like a, this is like one of the cards in clue, right? It's uh, it's Joe Biden with the Corvette in the garage. And the classified documents. Uh, So yeah, multiple different residences got very easy cooperation, didn't go and embarrass him in front of the midterms, probably influenced another election this way. We're not talking about that kind of stuff, apparently. Both sides, here we go back, a quote, both sides were mindful of the intense scrutiny that the case was drawing and felt that they had to be above reproach. That should be the default position, by the way, for the FBI, while investigating a former president then expected to run for re-election, of course. While trying to follow the Justice Department playbook for classified record probes, investigators on both sides braced for Trump to follow his own playbook of publicly attacking the integrity of their investigations. No, that's what everybody does. When you say something, then other people just say, that's not what happened. And uh, Trump is not unique in that. All right, I'm gonna keep skipping down here a little ways. uh, While the people who described the sensitive discussions disagreed on some particulars, okay, so we have four sources, but they don't even agree. It sounds really good. That's not actually how you do multi-sourcing uh, as someone who's you know dealt with source reporting and you have to discredit things that don't line up, so be it. Let's get to the part where they start talking about the names of these folks. So Steve D'Antuano, who was the former um, assistant director in charge of the Washington field office was one of the, the characters involved in this sort of drama. And it's interesting, they claim, they claim in this particular article, so I'm still scrolling down through it, was that he was um, making the case that it was too much, that this wasn't something that we should be doing. We being the FBI, we being the American people signing off on what the FBI does, that was his claim, that this was not the right move. And I think that's somewhat interesting. So we're going to get kind of the conflict here between prosecutors. So it says against that backdrop, the backdrop of what was going on and historical problems and going after Trump and crossfire hurricane and all the other kind of things that were going on in the history, the blemishes that they could, uh, they would be concerned about. Maybe I wonder if some of them were worried that Trump might win in 2024. That could be a real worry too. These people are career oriented. So against that backdrop, Brat, who is going to be, um, who the heck is Brat? I just, I just read it a second ago. Sort of irrelevant. He's one of the prosecutor role teams. Um, (laughs) And other senior national security prosecutors. So he's one of the main ones, including the assistant attorney general, Matt Olson and George Toskis, uh, top counterintelligence official, whoever that is. They met about a week prior to the raid with the FBI agents on their turf in an FBI conference room. Okay, so here we're going to get it. So Steve D'Antuano, he's the head of the Washington field office. Like I said, assistant director in charge was in charge of running the investigation. That's actually not very realistic. Um, Although he probably had pretty regular briefings on it, the dude is not running the investigation. He's running the field office, which is to say he's got him as the AD. Beneath that is going to be a special agent in charge of counterintelligence. So that's the next guy who we're going to hear about. It's a guy named uh, Alan Kohler. And then underneath that is going to be an ADIC. I'm sorry, uh, an ASAC, which is an assistant special agent in charge. Then there's going to be a supervisor below that. And then you're going to have the actual agents working the cases. So, um, he was adamant that the FBI shouldn't do a surprise search. This is according to people that were, uh, quoted here anonymously. DeAntuano said that, uh, he would agree to lead such a raid if only if he was ordered to not clear who that would be, but it would obviously have to be someone above the assistant director level of the FBI, which is pretty high up. And two other people said DeAntuano refused to do the search, but, uh, said it should be a consensual. We've heard this over. They could, you know, work it out with Trump's legal team. And he repeatedly urged that the FBI instead seek to persuade uh, Kokoran, I don't know who this person is, to a consensual search. It must be one of Trump's attorneys. All four people says this. Tempers ran high. Brat raised his voice, stressed that the agents, um, you know, could no longer trust Trump and his lawyers. And paraphrasing at this point because this is kind of boring. Reminded them of new footage sug- suggesting that Trump or his attorneys could be concealing classified documents at the Florida club. Uh, What is this new footage? Where did that come from? This sounds like this is the uh, the leak that we had of security camera footage. D'Antuano and fellow FBI officials complained how bad it would look for agents with quote-unquote FBI emblazoned on their jackets invading a former president's home. They, this is not good writing, by the way, too. They, they've said, according to some people with knowledge of the meeting, according to the people who knew, according to all four people, they've said this over and over again. This is such weak sourcing. It leads to weak writing. You know, it is what it is. Um, the special agent in charge of counterintelligence, and this is Alan Kohler, um, apparently was on the side of the attorneys, um, asked them to consider how bad it would look if they chose not to act. And that the government actually had secrets at Mira Lago. So you've got this sort of like uh, this big issue going back and forth between these two. So I did a little bit of looking on Alan Kohler. I'm not going to pull up his webpage right now. But uh, it's worth noting that uh, this is a guy who basically stopped working cases like so many of them in, you know, 15 years ago kind of deal. Um, they just they take these these people at the top of the FBI's food chain and they haven't been involved in casework in at least over a decade on the light end of things. And they and moreover, it can be 15 years or more some of the time when they're up here making these really critical decisions and they don't even know what they're talking about anymore. Um, they, they're so far removed and they're so fluffed up that they just have not dealt with this. So I actually started to write a tweet about this whole article because it incensed me in such a way. I'm going to read you the tweet because I decided not to tweet it. I figured, let's go. I'll just share it with you all, people that uh, that actually want to hear it long form. So allow me to read this. It says, the Washington Post reports that the FBI ADIC and the counterintelligence SAC disagreed about serving a search warrant at mar lago The left thesis as so, quote-unquote proved that the FBI is actually the bad actor who wanted to resist the Trump raid, and they are Trump loyal. This is actually quoted in the article. They talk about how it's actually like a... Uh, right leaning uh, group which there are people who lean right in the fbi generally speaking law enforcement goes that way right um but the real story is that the corrupt doj may have driven the train which is to say that the uh, the prosecutors were driving this but d'antuano kohler and all the actual agents who went along with flying down to Miralago lago and went and searched the president's house um in the same way that we would do to a drug dealer like these are the real problems any director with a spine would have stood up against this kind of trash and would be willing to resign over it, as anyone else should be in the entire management line. But none of these people has enough principle principle to be trusted with this type of job. And Kohler hasn't worked cases, I'm corrected here, I actually wrote it down earlier. 2004, that was the last time this guy was assigned as a frontline agent working cases before he stepped into the supervisory realm. Uh, Is that not a problem to anybody else? Like we're talking about 18 years lapsed between the last time this guy was on a case and actually was the investigator responsible. It just seems insane to me that that's the kind of person that you're going to allow to, to make critical decisions about whether or not we serve a search warrant and then in this incredibly political environment as well. Um, so I, says, I said, the FBI is hopelessly broken because the managers on the front line often have no recent experience and the ones who have done 15 to 18 years and then finally accept a desk at the end of their careers are quickly ignored and they're bypassed for what we call the blue flamers these are our corporate climbers the ladder climbers that are willing to follow orders and only the people who have become uh, gs i'm sorry the only people who have become gs15s this is going to be our unit chiefs our asacs our section chiefs these are all the same uh, pay grade are, are the ones who've never said no to a bad idea and their loyalty to the fbi to the bureau fully exceeds any considerations they have for the Constitution. That should be a real problem. I'm actually going to interject something I didn't I didn't say I was going to do earlier, but I'm going to talk about something else in just a second here. Um, when we say corruption, the suspendables, this is anybody that's willing to lose their job over this, and I'm going to uh, clue you into two new suspendables. Uh, one that you've heard of before a little bit, and one that you've never heard of, and I'm going to share about it for the first time tonight. Uh, the suspendables are talking about loyalty to the government agency over loyalty to the purpose of the agency, and that makes this Entire FBI. It's totally irredeemable. All right. I'm done with these kind of quotes here. Let's talk about suspendables. Number one, you have heard of my friend Gardo O'Boyle. You've heard of him, but you may not have seen anything about him before. I'm going to pull up this article right here. This is an FBI. I'm sorry. This is a uh, Fox News article written by Brooke Singman. This was released on Thursday, yesterday, for the specific purpose of preempting the story that is being dropped by CNN, which was actually dropped later uh, last night as well. I think they rushed it out and probably a Rolling Stones hit piece that's coming out in short order. Now let's talk a little bit about Garrett O'Boyle and what he did. Now, Garrett is my friend. I'm gonna be very clear about that. Uh, Garrett and I have only met for probably a grand total of 30 to 45 minutes in person. However, we talk almost every day because he's one of the founding members of The Suspendables. Just like Steve Friend, garrett is someone that is represented by an attorney and has been basically told to uh to hold what he got he went and did one of the testimonies he's the whistleblower that got bumped from his private hearing to a later private hearing um when we saw tulsi gabbard speaking in front of the weaponization committee when we saw Jonathan uh, turley when we saw thomas baker a retired fbi agent and we saw nikki parker who my friends and I affectionately are calling FBI Barbie. So this article, which was published on March 2nd, as I said, says uh, FBI threat tag created after Supreme Court's Dobbs decision ruling shifted to focus on pro-lifers, this whistleblower says. This whistleblower, again, Garrett Boyle. So they they out him in, uh, in full force here. Um, I think his attorney probably did this, although I don't think his attorney is going to uh, cop to it, which is fine. It says exclusive. The FBI created a threat tag following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade last year but it shifted to focus on pro-life individuals, an agent turned whistleblower told the House subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. FBI Special Agent Garrett O'Boyle from the Wichita Resident Agency, which is the Kansas City field office, also said the FBI made him divide one domestic terrorism case into four different cases in what he described as an effort by the Bureau to show that Congress had an influx of domestic terrorism cases. We've talked about this a little bit. I know Steve Friend has been on our show and talked about this. Essentially, when you get a case that has four subjects, let's Im- let's imagine a single criminal conspiracy. It's four subjects. One guy's going to drive the van. One guy's going to source the explosives. The other guy's going to find the weapons. Last guy's going to do the shooting and, you know, push the button on the bomb. Whatever. This is a, a simple idea. When that happens we can do it two ways. We could open up a case on every individual person, but we don't do that. That doesn't make sense because this one investigation, it just has four primary subjects involved or even secondary subjects. What the Bureau was asking Garrett to do and what he has alleged in his whistleblower complaint here is that he had one case. The Bureau asked him to open four separate cases, one on each of the things. So the driver, the bomb guy, the shooter, and, uh, you know, and the gun guy, the gun procurer. When you do that, you artificially inflate the number of cases by 400%. You are falsifying the records that they would normally expect would be just one case. And that's the way we'd normally do it. But in order to hit those bonuses to be able to hit the metrics of x number of white supremacy cases and domestic terrorism, they're going to overdo it in this case, and they're going to push forward something that uh, that's not real. And The result of it is, is that Congress goes, holy moly, we've got 400% increase in domestic terrorism in Kansas. And when you do that in 56 different field offices and all the different resident agencies, so you show an overwhelming increase in domestic terrorism cases, then the Bureau asked for more money and it asked for more resources. And they asked for the budget to handle it and the staffing to handle it and the hiring practices to handle it and all the equipment they might need and the social media exploitation tools and licenses to do it. So all these things are going to come into play. There's a bunch of money that can be had when you have enough work to do it. And so it's the same amount of work, any agent would do one case This is a problem. So here's the story. When these guys went in and did their testimony, and this is going to be my friend George Hill, who's been on our podcast earlier. I recommend you watch that episode. I may have to do it again with him because I think he's had a lot more time to think about it. He's got a better microphone, so it'll be easier to listen to. Um, Steve Friend, who also has had an upgrade microphone, that's a big deal. And uh, at some point, we'll get Garrett on, but I'm only going to do it when his um, when his counsel is prepared for him to do so. So the, the thing that's quite wild, I think it's quite wild, is that You've got, this, um, you've got this secret hearing, right? They were doing a transcribed interview, like a deposition. And the Democrat side of the table leaked the information. They leaked it to like the Washington Post. They leaked it to um, Rolling Stone and to CNN. That's a big issue and then that's why we have this article here this article is combating a leak that should have not happened because that was not the terms under which these guys went and and did this speaking now i know that the information from all three of their depositions was released because a hit piece is going to be on all of them and the other fun thing i know is first of all these are incredibly honest people and i promise you they are smarter than the foolish attorneys who decided to screw with them as you probably heard uh if you listen to our episode with steve friend And the episode I believe was entitled Mr. Friend goes to Washington. So he went and gave us a debrief on this because he doesn't care. Like he's a public figure in this point in a way that these other two are not. And yet these attorneys basically got it all backwards and wrong. They deliberately misheard it. And the response is, is that if they continue to go with the stories that they've claimed they're going to put out there, they're probably going to end up in a lawsuit for defamation because these are not people who would otherwise be part of the media. I know that a uh, friend's job at the Center for Newing America, they are more than happy to put forward. He told me he's going to get some of that Sandman money, which is funny to me. So we're talking about a, uh, a guy who basically talked about uh, pumping up the numbers. And then he talked about something that I wasn't all that familiar with, although it makes perfect sense. The FBI came up with a threat tag. This is what we do to tag intelligence. So when there's an investigation of some kind and there's going to be investigations all over the country, we'll come up with these threat tags. In this case, this one is called Threats to SCOTUS. 2000 or uh, 2022. Threats to SCOTUS 2022 was supposed to be the actual threats to the Supreme Court that was the designation um, as the Dobbs decision was leaked and prior to the final overturning of Roe when it was actually finalized. So you've got this sort of strange thing where people were going out and threatening Supreme Court justices, and then possibly additional threats that were in line with the fact that the Dobbs decision was going to be coming out what eventually became the Dobbs decision. So here's what's really weird. Garrett's allegation was, and we haven't talked about Garrett's concrete allegations because I didn't want to get into it until after he'd been able to testify. Um, But he believes that there was a perfectly reasonable threat tag being used. I think so as well, because there were obviously those threats. Uh, Those of us who saw people protesting out in front of these Supreme Court justices home, we know it was out there. So this is a real problem. Um, But the FBI pivoted because it's a political organization that's trying to affect outcomes. And they pivoted to do a focus on people at pro-life pregnancy centers and other pro-life activists um, who <laughs> in in the testimony, uh, or not testimony, I guess in sort of the advocacy that we watched Maisie Hirono. So this is like one of the dumbest senators in America. Uh, but Maisie Hirono got up and uh, spoke to, she's on the Senate Judiciary Committee, she's talking to uh, Merrick Garland, and she referred to people who are pro-life activists as anti-choice extremists which was a new one on me. But, you know, whatever. This is the whole point. They can't have an honest discussion. They have to change the terms. They have to change the metrics. They have to pump the numbers. And in this case, they decided illogically, but with political purpose, we've got a discussion that essentially the FBI is going to target pro-life people because clearly it's pro-life advocates that are going to be the most dangerous and violence once you overturn Roe which has basically been the goal of every pro-life activist since the Roe decision in the 70s. So Roe v. Wade gets overturned. That's gonna make Catholics and other pro-life types violent, apparently, because they got what they wanted. Like it's a step towards getting rid of abortion, particularly in states that were already favorable to it with these snapback laws. Um, Okay, so that's the FBI. So now you've got an agency, as I told you, we're an intelligence agency working here. We're looking at the FBI as an intelligence agency, uh, but they're lacking intelligence. We could say that pretty clearly. So they wanted Garrett to go into this. And as he mentioned, um, you know, going to a pregnancy center would be sort of the opposite of an abortion clinic and why in the world would we go there when we would definitely expect that those are not going to be the people who are mad. It's going to be the people who are in the Planned Parenthood camp and are um, out there, you know, from Jane's Revenge and some of these other Jane sent us or whatever the heck it is. Uh, So anyway, so he got these requests for collections, Uh, a request for collection, I'm reading right here from the article, O'Boyle says he was later given a request for collection, he was instructed his confidential human sources, who he said was a pro life person, a bunch of questions about threats to the Supreme Court, totally illogical, totally insane. A request for collection is a document that's going to give you like specific items you're supposed to go out and find. It's written up by intelligence people, analysts who sort of say like, this is a gap in what we know. So go out there and find it. And if you were living in a world of, uh, let's say, Washington, D.C., and you wanted to go and say, you know, what what sort of Chinese contacts are happening in the lobbyist sphere, we would go out and try to meet up with some lobbyists and find out how many people from the Chinese consulate are trying to set up meetings with them. That would be like an example of a request for collection. Like there's a gap. We don't know how much influence the Chinese have over lobbyists. And so we're going to go out and meet them, or it could be for, you know, a machine shop and find out how many machine shops are being visited by people who espouse white supremacy ideology. Like, there's a lot of these like ideas of requests for collection. Um, so in this case, the idea that they would send him to a pro-life center, totally absurd. But like I said, this is the sort of the thing. Um, <laughs> it's it's classic. They said when he when he was asked directly, this is during his testimony. If the FBI was using and creating threat ties, threat tags in a politicized way, O'Boyle, my buddy, the real G.O.B., uh, you could follow him at G.O.B. Actual on Twitter. Actually, uh, G.O.B. Actual. He said, "Yeah, I do. I do think that because that's what we've all been talking about. This is the whole point. This is the allegation that we've been making: is that we are dealing with a group that is totally ideologically activated, and they are not following the facts. The facts would say that if there was going to be violence, it would be by people who are trying to keep." abortion to be a thing. And uh, and it ought not to be. So, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with these kind of troubling actors, um, they're dishonest and it leads us to go like, well, does this person have credibility? What they're trying to do, just so you have an awareness, is they're attempting to discredit Garrett. Uh, that's what the CNN was doing. I just don't understand how we've gotten to a point where we are so divided that they can't even have this honest conversation right? They can't even honestly go, well, that does look bad. And we're not always right. And so you know, maybe we, we deal with that. That's not what's happening right now. I'm gonna give you some background on who Garrett is for a little bit of reputation. We're gonna have to step back in time a little bit here. Oh, there it is. I don't know why it has that. Okay, there we go. So we're stepping back in time. This is an article that was written in May of last year, May of 2022. Okay. And the title is this is on a, a local Fox station. Whistleblower alleges FBI launched investigations into disgruntled school parents. Now, if you've been following what I've been involved in, I actually am going to share with you a full timeline of uh, what I've been up to in the disclosures. I I did it for Jesse Waters. And they asked me if I could kind of explain, you know, what have you been involved in? Like, how are you whistleblower? What does that mean? And when I did it, it was it was actually kind of shocking to me. Now, one of the people that has been a partner in all of this, and when I say a partner, I mean who has been actively pulling this information and sharing it with Congress. This is prior to him being canceled and becoming a, I mean, he was a suspendable beforehand, but before he was actually suspended, Uh, Garrett is this whistleblower. This is the whistleblower, you know, Garrett O'Boyle, who goes out and went to Jim Jordan's office and brought them information saying exactly which parents were at the school board meetings that were getting targeted by the EDU officials threat tag, which is what I shared initially in October of 2021. So Garrett's the guy that that is responsible for this particular piece. Now they wrote a letter. um, This is actually a Jim Jordan piece here, uh, Jim Jordan rather um, tweet, and it shows that he has a a letter that he wrote on uh, on behalf of him, and I believe uh, Johnson. And it's saying that they've got, you know, all these questions that they got this email that went out uh, that we sent over that I sent over, and then they've got concrete quotes from the investigations. So it's one thing to say, look, here's a a policy that has been put out and it's a problem. And and I've done that. It's so much more powerful, I think. And I think it's the most important part of the secondary. Is like not only did they say that this is not what it means, um, they actually used that threat tag and they opened up investigations. Like, that's what the Bureau does. It's literally the Federal Bureau of Investigations. So here it goes. Uh, This is quoting from the second page of this um, dated May 11th. This is to Merrick Garland from Jim Jordan's office, we have learned from brave whistleblowers that the FBI has involved in opened investigations with the EDU officials threat tag in almost every region of the country and relating to all types of educational settings. The information we have received shows how, as a direct result of your directive, federal law enforcement is using counterterrorism resources to investigate protected First Amendment activities. This has always been the problem we've had. It's a First Amendment protected activity, number one. And the second thing is, it very much appears that the Attorney General of the United States perjured himself when he said that they would not be using Patriot Act tools or counterterrorism resources because it appears that that's exactly what they did and that's a big deal. So, now uh, Jordan actually goes on to quote some of the things that my buddy Garrett exposed. And he did this in a lawful way. One of the things you can do under 5 U.S.C. 7211 is you can directly go to Congress and petition with whatever your grievances are. In this case, it is a in, uh, infringement of First Amendment protected activities by the FBI who is expressly forbidden from doing so. So here we go. In one investigation begun following your directive, the FBI's blank field office (it's redacted, interviewed a mom for allegedly telling a local school board, we are coming for you. That's a direct quote. quote we are coming for you. End quote. The complaint which came into the FBI through the National Threat Operations Center snitch line this is talk. That's what it stands for. Talk is the same place where all the uh, Turn In Your MAGA Neighbor Week stuff happened um, that Bongino dealt with. All right, Alleged that the mom was a threat because she belonged to a quote-unquote right-wing moms group known as, here it comes, Moms for Liberty. Now, Lom- Moms for Liberty also got involved with my buddy Steve Friend. Some of you may be aware of that. And um, obviously, they're on the... Uh, They're on the uh, no-go list with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, lovely enough. This woman also apparently was a dangerous uh, issue because she was, quote-unquote, a gun owner, as is your Second Amendment right. So now we are talking about two, maybe three. I would say it's three First and Second Amendment protected activities. Number one, you have the Freedom of Association, and Moms for Liberty is something you are free to associate with. Two, you are free to be a gun owner under the Second Amendment, and the government is not allowed to infringe upon that. So there's no reason they should open an investigation because of that. And then the third, she said some words like we're coming for you, which could mean anything. It literally could mean we're coming for you by running for office. So without any further information, this is pretty useless. So here we're gonna get into it. When an FBI agent interviewed the mom, because an agent interviewed the mom, an agent went out to the house of this woman with this terribly weak, this was a phone call at best on my end, just saying. Um, When the agent interviewed the mom, She told the agent that she was upset about the school board's mask mandates and that her statement was a warning that her organization, oh my goodness, would seek to replace the school board with new members through the electoral process. It's almost like it's not even close to a threat, except maybe a political threat to their job because they're doing a bad job in this woman's thing. In fact, I think that's the way we're actually supposed to handle disputes in this country. This should be a big troubling problem for all people. This should be something that the left can get behind too, because you don't want an FBI calling and knocking on your door, looking for a crime for something so simple as, I don't know what the lady said. But if we're going to go after, you know, the unpreferred groups, here's another one. Uh, The FBI's blank field office opened an investigation subsequent to your directive into a dad opposed to mask mandates. The complaint came through the National Threat Operations Center snitch line. Jordan really loves that, that term snitch line. I don't know why and alleged that the dad quote unquote fit the profile of an insurrectionist. So here's the thing when you receive these types of allegations. When somebody tells you that you fit the threat of an insurrectionist, this is a trash complaint and should not be given any more credibility. Do you know why? Because that is not a serious statement. There's no allegation or information of a potential federal crime fit the profile of an insurrectionist. It's not even a real thing because he rails against the government, free speech, first amendment, and he believes in all conspiracy theories. It turns out, you're allowed to believe what you want. No thought police in this country, even though they're attempting to institute it. And you're going to see some of that in the cyber cyber uh, document. And he quote-unquote has a lot of guns and threatens to use them. That sounds vague and not true. That sounds like someone who doesn't know anything about guns. I bet people think I have a lot of guns. And I know people that have many more. Uh, when the FBI agent interviewed the complainant because an FBI agent went out there, again... Here we go. The complaint admitted that they had no specific information. Oh, this is the complaint that got interviewed. That's actually okay. <laughs> no specific information or observations or any crimes or threats. Uh, but they contacted the FBI after learning that the Justice Department had a website to submit tips to the FBI, uh, quote, in regards to any concerning behavior directed towards school boards. Well, ain't that something? The allegation that when you open up this sort of information to people and people feel like they are empowered to go and address it with federal law enforcement of all things, and federal law enforcement is happy to go out and and address it as well, now you've got these ridiculous complaints coming in. You've created more work to sift through, and it's garbage. Last example that Jordan gives. In another case initiated at your directive, the FBI's blank field office opened an investigation into Republican state elected officials, ooh, that's not good, over allegations from a state Democratic Party official, okay, so now we've got members of one party alleging to another party, to the FBI, really, that the Republicans, quote-unquote, incited violence by expressing public displeasure with the school district's vaccine mandates, as is our First Amendment right. This is actually one political party targeting the other with law enforcement resources. The complaint also came in through the Entalk snitch line. This is bad stuff. There were a bunch of others as well, just so you know, but he highlighted just a few quick examples. So this is Jim Jordan wrapping it all up in here. He's asking to see all the uh, the information and materials. Uh, once again, this was, <laughs> this was dated in May of 2022 and obviously was not complied with, unfortunately, because in the world that we live in today, The FBI does not feel beholden to congressional oversight. They don't seem to care whatsoever, but I wanted you to have a very firm understanding and a very clear idea of who the person is that made this allegation, who this whistleblower is, because there are going to be some smear pieces on Steve Friend, who many of you have been introduced to through this podcast, and you'll have a real clear idea of what kind of guy he is. He's a great guy. Garrett is very, very like-minded, much more spiritual in some ways, and much more... um, he's not nearly as boisterous as steve and i he's he's humble in a way that is um it's kind of it's kind of amazing he's taking all this stuff he's a former infantryman he was a local police officer and then joined the fbi and had a couple years of fbi experience like a very short career like three years i think uh, before all this stuff came up and he gladly sacrificed the career knowing that it was probably going to be the end we talked about it at length as he was doing these activities. And there are many more activities that he got involved in on the whistleblower end. He and I have a very similar pattern. A lot of the stuff that I was finding, um, he was validating on my behalf. When people would bring things to me, he would make sure that it was in fact accurate before we brought it to Congress, because we didn't wanna have some false allegations to discredit our uh, capabilities. All right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about this national cybersecurity strategy, and we'll end with a few minutes of Chris Ray, because I've got it queued up for a few moments. this is a, a troubling, troubling development. So the White House released this on Thursday in the evening. And uh, it is a it's entitled it's a document. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting that there's an audio here. There's a national cybersecurity strategy. It's dated March of 2023. It's released by the White House. And uh, and this is my favorite March 2023. It's actually dated March 1st, but was released on the 2nd. Uh, people asked me if that was a possibility that it was released in uh, response to Matt Taibbi's Twitter files drop yesterday, and the answer is probably no. It was probably that it was actually scheduled to go out on the first, and then someone screwed up because it's the federal government. You should always be uh, comfortable with the idea that it was a an abject failure on somebody's part and not uh, some sort of malfeasance or some sort of uh, malicious intent here. So there's a little letter from Joe Biden talking about why they're going to invest $65 billion to make sure that every American has reliable internet service. I have no idea what that's all about, but that's part of the infrastructure bill, I guess. Uh, the National Cybersecurity Strategy, quote, details a comprehensive approach that the administration is taking to better secure cyberspace and inser- ensure that the uh, U.S. is in the strongest possible position to realize all benefits and potential in our digital future. I, I don't know why our government is involved in that at all, actually. And yet here we go so they're going to worry about bad actors and they're going to try to stop hackers and they're going to try to do some executive orders on improving our nation's cybersecurity, and they're going to do all this other stuff there's some really dark stuff in here so we're going to get into it kind of aggressively uh pillars they have they have five pillars listed one defend critical infrastructure i'm not confident that the uh that the federal government is really good at doing that i used to go around and do defensive briefings when i was in uh, uh counterintelligence. So we would go around and talk to people in the water business that would you know, do water processing in Fairfax County, I would talk to. Electrical grid, we'd go and talk to telco companies that were doing phone lines and, and cell towers and stuff. You try to get them to like stop showing the Chinese or the Russian delegates that would wanna come and look at it all of our stuff because, uh, <laughs> because all those things were basically accommodating the federal workforce at their homes and shutting off like power or water or trash service or any of these things would be a kind of a big deal in the Washington DC area, but it's a big deal anywhere. Infrastructure that uh, you know keeps your way of life going, big deal. Pillar number two, disrupt and dismantle threats, actors, eh, we'll see about that. Uh, pillar three, shape market forces. This one scares the hell out of me. Shape market forces to drive security and resilience. I don't think so, that's not good. Uh, number four, invest in a resilient future. That sounds like a vague buzzwords. And five, forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. The resilient future piece is going to be really, really troubling to you. Number four, uh, as you can imagine. So we'll jump into them. As we go, there's some emerging trends, sort of irrelevant, malicious actors. They're talking about spyware, and hacking, they're going to talk about government actors, that's going to be China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, other autocratic states, with revisionist intent, they want to use advanced cyber capabilities, it's actually cheaper to wage cyber war than it is to do a lot of things. Uh, The PRC, the People's Republic, Uh, big deal, doing their thing, fine, so be it. You know They're going to be a problem, but we already have agencies that do this. So the path that they're going to be talking about here, pillars to organize a national strategy, listen to this government speak. Let me just read this line. This is the kind of stuff. So they wrote 35 pages and essentially it does nothing. Um, This document does nothing. It's, It's of no value. It's just sort of telling you about how creepy it is. The pillars organizing this strategy articulate a vision of shared purpose and priorities for these communities. Highlight challenges they faced in achieving this vision and identify strategic objectives around which to organize their efforts. You want to talk about stupid smart people. I know my buddy Dan Bongino and I had a fun conversation about this the other day. He said somebody had to be smart to be in the FBI. I mentioned you don't have to be smart; you just have to be educated. That's not the same thing. And he mentioned that that's the the fundamental definition of the stupid smart people. The stupid smart people wrote this document. Um, they're talking about rebalancing, defending cyberspace. Like again, cyberspace is like it's a nebulous concept. The real thing that they're talking about is getting involved in your personal business. And there's a whole bunch of just. Dis- national actors here, the National Security Council, the National Cyber Director, Office of Cyber Director, never even heard of that. We're just constantly creating more and more and more government to solve problems that you are responsible for yourself. This is like the TikTok problem. Like, is it a Chinese spyware app? Yeah, it is. It totally is. Should you be allowed to use it if you want? Yeah, I don't care. Why, why would anyone care? Why would the federal government have any business getting involved in that? All right, so the pillars. We're going to move for through them just kind of objective established cybersecurity requirements to support national security, public safety. It's just really difficult to say whether or not there's an actual um, a mandate that that says the federal government should be involved in this. Harmonize and streamline new and existing regulations. Yeah, right. Like how about just they're going to make a bunch more. They're going to enable regulated entities to afford security. So now they're going to be given away of our money, making sure that people can, secure certain things, scale public-private collaboration. That scares the crap out of me. These public-private collaborations are what we're seeing in the Twitter files, and I'm sure happened with other big tech. Um, in the FBI, it was known as Operation Bronze Griffin. This is the the attempt by the federal government to circumvent their prohibitions on First Amendment protections by trying to accomplish these means and, uh, and using a private actor to do so the problem is the minute you ask a private actor to do these things they are now agents of the government and they are subjected to the same issues and and um and no-go zones that the uh that a federal actor would so or that the federal agency would rather this is not good these public-private collaborations are, are all bad news and uh and I think we probably should have to get rid of them. They want to integrate federal cybersecurity centers. Of course, what are they going to do? They're going to be bringing in a bunch of different agencies, putting them all together, putting a bunch of money. Everyone's going to be doing the same thing. They're talking about putting um, Department of Energy, the Energy Threat Analysis Center, the DOD's industrial-based collaborative information sharing environment, whatever the heck that is, the NSA's Cyber Collaboration Center, like all these horrible things, the National Joint uh, um, Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force. It's just like acronym after acronym after acronym. When they do that, you know, they're always hiding things. Acronyms are meant to hide stuff. And they're partially for convenience, but they are got these long names for a reason. Um, objective strategy number 1.4 is update federal incident response. So, you know, here's the, here's the big pieces on this thing. They want to modernize defenses. They want to spend a bunch of money. They want to put together all these different actors that are going to be part of this, you know, governmental m- hodgepodge. They want to move private sector entities involved, and some of the scariest things that are in this are they're talking about trying to regulate uh, s- cryptocurrency because it could be used to move money from ill-gotten gains, including things like spyware and ransomware. That's not good. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna s- scan off this thing for a second. We'll roll down a little ways, but the scariest stuff is when they start talking about basically infringing on your personal freedoms, like using things like. Um, like crypto because it could be used for something nefarious. It's the same argument that Jim Comey made in 2014 about what he called the Going Dark Initiative, which was to say that the FBI and other law enforcement and intelligence community operators should have access to -to end-to-end encrypted apps and like a universal skeleton key to open these things up and read documents and, and information that you keep on your phone encrypted because two things. Number one, there could be child pornography And you wouldn't want that would you here's the thing you don't have to sacrifice your freedom and a tool that is has a completely valid and and, um, reasonable use just because it could be used for ill just because somebody could abuse that technology like you don't break the technology because it could be used wrong you just have to work harder and stop people from using it improperly and they did the same idea Uh, They're talking about the same thing here with crypto. The other thing that they said that uh, end-to-end encryption could be used is like hiding terrorist activity, which was a big buzzword. But just because terrorists exist doesn't mean that we can't have end-to-end encrypted apps. I'm going to give you another example. Just because somebody could lock somebody into a room and never let them out and keep them a captive, and now you have a sex slave or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, somebody that is a captive population stuck behind a locked door, that does not mean that we can't have locks, right? It's a very narrow subset of people that are abusing the technologies, whether it be crypto, whether it be end-to-end encryption, whether it be a physical lock. These technologies are not inherently bad. They can be used, like anything could be used bad. Same thing about a gun. I have them sitting behind me. They're used for personal defense. They could be used in a crime, but they're not. You don't get to take them away just because somebody might use them wrong. So this is part of the argument that they're making here. And what they said is that they're going to actually hold get this right, they're going to hold the entities that write the software code responsible for malware vulnerabilities. So let's say somebody finds like a zero day exploit in fill in the blank uh, software that you choose to use, and they are able to hijack your computer for money. Under this strategy, the software writer would be responsible, not the malicious actor, not the person who wrote the malware. It just seems insane. And then what it's all about at the end, and I'm gonna scroll down past all of this stuff and I'll come right in because I wanna actually show you the text because um, once you once you see it, you can never unsee these kind of things, here we go. So we're not dealing with honest people, right? Buried on page 27 of a 35 page document is the following. This strategy will take a comprehensive and coordinated approach to expanding the national cyber workforce improving its diversity, of course, and increasing access to cyber educational and training pathways. I just don't know how you can always shoehorn This diversity ridiculousness into everything. But they do it. I'm going to skip down another paragraph. The strategy will build on existing efforts, develop our national cybersecurity workforce, including all these different things. There's the NICE initiative, there's the Cyber Corps scholarships for programs. There's a National Center for Academic Excellence and blah, 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 blah. All these training things. They're going to leverage ongoing workforce development programs with the National Science Foundation and other scientific agencies to augment government programs. Here we go. It will tackle. Here I quote, ready directly. It will tackle head on the lack of diversity in the cyber workforce. I know you were concerned about that. I know it was making it difficult for you to sleep. You were thinking, man, um, when I use my iPhone and I'm checking out that new iOS update, was it written by people who fit into the, the following diversity groups? Because this thing says employers are not hiring from the right talent pool hiring from too small of a talent pool, direct quote, too small of a talent pool, and from professional networks that are not able to draw from the full diversity of our country. That's weird. I thought it was just the people who applied for the job that had the right skill set. No, what we need are more women, people of color, first-generation professionals and immigrants. That's a new one to me. Uh, individuals with disabilities. That's really important. We need uh, John Fetterman doing your iPhone updates and LGBTQIA plus individuals that are among the communities that are underrepresented. And you know what, if we're not representing everybody in everything, we are not okay. This is not acceptable. Now, interestingly enough, the Biden administration keeps hawking how they have like something like 14% of their overall appointed positions are coming from the LGBTQIA+ communities. That's weird. That seems like a massive overrepresentation because those things people like that make up what? Maybe 2% I guarantee it's less than five in this whole country. So why is it 14%? I think they should be drawing from a more important talent pool of regular people. Wouldn't that be something if we could just do that? All right, let's wrap up with a couple things from Chris Ray. This thing is really scary stuff. If you have not read the National Cybersecurity Strategy, you can find it on the FBI's Twitter page because because of course you can, right? Because of course you can. That's what's going on. (laughs) You've got this sort of thing where the FBI is just gonna push it out. I'm going to see if i can actually pull up this guy here it is okay so now i'm going to pull this little chris ray piece and we'll do a little bit more commentary on this thing before it ends this is the end of the brett bear piece look i only did the first uh, half the first 15 minutes so here he is talking my former boss uh get ready for the chris list so-
0: Will you be meeting the subpoena request for the House Judiciary Committee for these documents about the investigation into parents and school boards? We're going
2: to work collaboratively with the Congress. What does that uh, mean? This Congress, just like we have have with with the Congress before it and the Congress before that. Uh, We're going to try to be as transparent as we can be, but we're also going to be mindful of our own obligations, legal and policy that we have. What's your thought?
1: This is a man who just said a whole bunch of words and literally said nothing. We're gonna be collaborative with the Congress. No, 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 they're the oversight group. Like their job is to tell you what they want and then you're supposed to comply with it. But he just said, we're gonna do if we want to. Talk about
2: that. Well, look, what I will tell you is what I told the executive management of all of our field offices across the country when I first read that memorandum.
1: I gotta stop it again. Um, do you ever notice that when he's asked a question, he has as many words as possible before he gets to the thing like what I'm going to tell you is that I told the executives of the field offices, who are human beings that have ears that are able to listen to words that I said, at a time when it was appropriate for me to be speaking, not a different time. Like, it's just it's all crap. It's all crap that comes out of this guy's mouth. He's running out the clock on this thing, as we mentioned, uh, on our last podcast.
2: Which is the FBI is not now, nor will it ever be in the business of policing speech at school board meetings or anywhere else. But we are not in the business of policing speech by parents at school board meetings or anywhere else.
1: So I did a little jump cut there. I just wanted to cut out some of the garbage that was in his actual statement. However, as we have just found, the FBI is more than willing to go out and interview and talk to. And that's why it's so important to know the, the, the actual information, this is going back to May of last year. He thinks you've already forgotten, because it's March of 2023, that the FBI did this, and now the whistleblower who brought that forward, Garrett O'Boyle, my buddy, um, is gonna be coming into the public light, not because he wanted to, not because that was his choice, but because Democratic operatives are forcing it on him. So, um, you know, the man's lying, fact. All right, so I set these little, like, things up so I could remember where the next piece is. asked
0: you also back then about the investigation to COVID origins. Is the FBI in charge of the investigation of the origins of the coronavirus? Uh, We certainly have a role in looking into the
2: That's not a yes or no.
0: What is the determination by the FBI?
2: So uh, as you note, Brett, uh, the FBI has for quite some time now assessed.
1: As you note, the FBI has for quite some time now assessed, like number one, just keep watching this guy's head. If you wanna see what people do when they lie, they move around a bunch. They're very uncomfortable because they're saying things that are untrue. This guy does this over and over and over again. His head moves around like a bobblehead. I said it on Wednesday. Um, it's it's really uncomfortable to watch when you've done these types of work. Like I do interviews all the time with people. I used to do it in, in a paramedic setting. If I watched people like this, I would think they were on a drug or they were lying to me or maybe they were constipated <laughs> or they needed a catheter because they had a blood clot and they hadn't peed in days. Like I've had that happen too. This is a really weird thing to watch uh, this man just doesn't... And then he's going to give you the list. Get ready for a Chris list of running out the clock, talking about all the types of employees we have.
2: That the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan.
1: I might have cut out the list, actually.
2: <laughs> That's probably, probably step good. back for a second. You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, there analysts, virologists, microbiologists, et cetera, who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses, like COVID, uh, and the concerns that that in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, uh, the threats that those could pose. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans, and that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for.
1: It was like a six-minute version of saying, yes, we do assess that the Chinese lab leak was the most likely thing because the FBI has some capabilities in that field. I just did his job, except I wasn't trying to run out the clock because I'm actually running up on the edge of our clock. Let's finish out the last little piece of this video and we'll wrap the sucker up.
2: I should add that, uh, that our work related to this continues, and there are not a whole lot of details I can share that aren't aren't classified oh. I will just make the observation that the Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here the work that we're doing the work that our US government and, and close foreign partners are doing um, and that's unfortunate for everybody
1: right that is a forest
2: just last year I mean I'll just give you one example oh here we go uh, it's gonna be a list turkey division, our New Mexico division, in one seizure last fall, seized a million fentanyl pills, as if that weren't enough, loads of methamphetamine, something like $2 million in cash, lots and lots of guns, ballistic vests,
0: hand grenades. I just have a couple of Twitter questions. Ford Fisher tweets, what I'd really like to ask the (laughs) FBI director
1: on... He's just like listing things that they seized, like every single law enforcement agency does. It's so bizarre. Uh, they're going to ask him here, okay, does he, you know, what's going on with the January 6th thing? He's not going to give you a straight answer, by the way. He's going to tell you he's got a lot of faith in people. 5th, so gross.
0: A still unidentified person planted pipe bombs at the DNC and RNC, which diverted law enforcement um, attention and resources on January 6th. With hundreds of other January 6th defendants arrested over two years, how has the bomber still not been caught? Does the FBI director feel confidently that the they will come someday be brought to justice. He only
1: answers the second
2: question. I will say that I have enormous confidence in the team, the dedicated team that is focused exclusively on that investigation.
1: Okay, he doesn't have confidence that they're gonna catch the person. He has confidence in the people that are doing work. That sounds great. Uh, I know some of those people. I don't know if we should have confidence in them at this point. It's been a long time. The FBI is pretty good at finding people when they want to. We find uh, grandmas that were marching behind the velvet ropes uh, January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. But we can't find this. Uh, and we can't find any of the people that were involved in bombing uh, pregnancy centers. Firebombing them. Vandalizing them. It was over a hundred. We don't have any arrests in that. That's weird. So, Chris Ray is not an honest actor. It's worth noting. It's one of those things that... What are you going to do? Uh, the man refuses to be accountable to us. So, I guess we should... Uh, Look at the, the simple question, can these leftists have an honest discussion? The answer seems to be no. That's what I'm taking it away. Um, just going to give you the, the quick highlights on what you missed. If you didn't watch the hearing with Garland, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to cut out all of the Democrat pieces, and I'm going to post it on, the, on my uh, Rumble channel. So it'll be posted probably over the weekend. If you get bored, it's like an hour and a half instead of four and a half hours, which is a lot easier. And I made a couple. I even have a shorter one that just has um, Cruz and Howley and Kennedy. You can watch them. Let me just give you a quick summary of what the uh, the leftist Democrat congressman, or uh, senators rather said. Uh, Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut said that uh, he was really interested in the Wagner Group and uh, what they were doing in Ukraine. Go figure. Uh, Senator Whitehouse said that uh, climate change is a really big deal. There's been a lot of lawsuits into climate change, and we need to worry about whether or not money is being appropriately given to the Ukrainian war effort and whether oligarchs in the United States that uh, have ties to Russia are being appropriately penalized and we're doing civil asset, asset forfeiture. Senator offsoff from uh, Georgia said, we need to be really sure that prisons are safer and nice. He was really interested in prison safety. I don't know where the hell that came from. Um, Senator Kuhn says that uh, violent crime is up and we should prevent criminals from having guns. Guns are a big problem. And sometimes drivers lose their licenses because they're in debt and they don't like that. He doesn't like that people lose their driver's licenses. I don't know. Uh, Maisie Hirono invented a a term, anti-choice extremist, talking about crimes that happened in the 70s and 80s in the abortion movement and the anti-abortion movement. And so that's why you should go after uh, federal resources to protect abortion clinics. Also, uh, domestic terrorism and white supremacy are a big deal. And they're really scary to LGBTQIA plus whatever. Uh, General Garland said yes. I love calling him General Garland, by the way. uh, They they keep calling him that. Cory Booker talked about fentanyl. He fluffs Biden, says Biden's doing a great job. Thank God that uh, he's gotten cops to stop doing chokeholds. That was also pretty gross. Um, No serious questions from the left side of the aisle. None. Zero. Whatsoever. And um, none of them showed up for the second half of questioning. So there were two rounds. They had like a seven-minute round, and they had like a a two-minute round or something, or a three-minute round. Um, The only person who stuck around for round two, I believe, was Senator Whitehouse from the Democrat side. All the rest of the questions were Republicans. So you had all of your you know, your best hits there. We had Cornyn and some of the others. So I cut out all the, the garbage, nonsense questions, all the fluff, and I just put it all into one. You can watch it. Like I said, it's an hour and a half. It's still really long, uh, but it's way shorter than the four and a half hours you'd have to watch to have caught the entire thing. So I hope you, uh, if you want to take a look at that, knock yourself out. I'm not expecting a ton of views on that, but it's available. It's a resource for you if you choose. I spent a bunch of time because I wanted to make sure I watched the whole hearing and uh, be able to give you the full take on it. So that it is. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Kyle Serafin Show. I'm very appreciative of you watching. I will have a five-star review for you on Monday when I have Director uh, when I have Phil back. We're gonna have a really neat guest on Monday. I'm gonna have John Mattingly, who is a retired police officer who was shot in the Breonna Taylor raid, and he's the author of Twelve Seconds in the Dark, which should be um, not what we're talking about ex- explicitly. What we're gonna be talking about is how someone hired a killer or at least was alleged to have hired a killer to come after him and his family. And the FBI decided not to do it because they were too busy going after him for civil rights investigations um, into Breonna Taylor's life, even though he got shot doing a legitimate law enforcement action while they had a search warrant. We're going to get his story. Um, as, as you have probably gotten used to, we talk about FBI malfeasance, DOJ malfeasance. This is obviously one of those things. We want to talk to people who are law enforcement uh, heroes that did the right thing, that spent an honorable career. So I'm going to be talking about somebody who did both. I think that's really cool. So tune in on Monday. You can expect that first thing. It'll be a long-form interview. I've got no time limit on it, but we'll be taking that shortly and uh, getting John's story about what the FBI has failed to do on his family's behalf. And I think you're gonna not wanna miss that one. Uh, we continue to get more and more downloads and, and uh, subscribers. We're really appreciative of that. The uh, the five-star reviews have been pouring in. And like I said, we'll, we'll read another one, but thank you so much. If you do take the time, if you do like what you're hearing, give us a comment. We'll read one of them on the show for sure. Phil loves it, he reads every one of them. I read every one of them. And, uh, and you'll get to hear your review <laughs> if you put it out there, especially if you have some kind of funny or quirky title. Um, on top of that, if you'll share this with your friends, We'll take all the subscribers we can get right now. We are growing the base and, uh, and that is always appreciated and, uh, put a comment out there. If you're watching on uh, Podbean or on Apple, you can't do it, but you can always go to our rumble channel, watch the video. A lot of people always ask me, Hey, how come you don't put it on rumble? It's on rumble folks. All you gotta do is search my name and you'll find it. And, uh, if you're listening on the, uh, if you're on the rumble channel and you're going to be away, you can always find us on Apple, on Spotify. We get a lot of, uh listeners, and downloads from iHeartRadio. Anywhere that you find podcasts, you can you can find us. You can just search The Kyle Seraphin Show. In fact, under Apple, KYLE will bring me up. I'm the first Kyle that I've been able to see. So anyway, folks, we do really appreciate your listenership, and uh, I hope that you have a wonderful weekend. We will catch you on Monday with John Mattingly. This has been The Kyle Seraphin Show, and I'm Kyle Seraphin. Catch you after the weekend. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Seraphin Show. Be sure to follow him
0: on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Seraphim.